Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's international tax practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. The topic for this episode has been ripped from today's headlines, SPACs, or so-called blank check companies. I'm delighted to be joined by three of my colleagues here at KPMG who are going to help us understand the international tax implications of SPACs. I'm going to start with Phil DeSalvo, who will give us an overview of SPACs. Then Steve Massett and I will discuss the potential application of the U.S. inversion rules to SPACs. And last but not least, Barbara Roche is going to regale us on the intricacies of the PFIC rules, how they could apply to a SPAC and why we should care. First, I'd like to introduce Phil DeSalvo. Phil is a principal in KPMG's m and tax practice and a founder of KPMG's Partnership Transactions Group. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gary. Very happy to be here. So, Phil, I'm I'm seeing SPACs everywhere. They've 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 started invading my dreams. Let's start with the basics. What what is a SPAC? So, SPAC it's an acronym, of course, stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. You'll also hear folks call them blank check companies, which I believe you alluded to in the intro. And that's because after the initial public offering, it's just a blank check sitting there to go buy a target, basically. At a high level, the SPAC lifecycle, it's a combination of an IPO process and an M&A transaction. So first, the sponsors, they form the SPAC. Usually, it's a U.S. corporation or Cayman corporation, depending on the intended target. Then the SPAC IPOs, and it raises public capital. So at this time, it's just a public company with just cash sitting on its balance sheet. So next up, the SPAC goes, and it basically identifies the target. This is the M&A portion. So it goes through the typical acquisition due diligence process, looks at finance, tax function, operations, all the normal things you would see in a diligence process. Then when they find that target, the SPAC usually goes out and it tries to find more funding, so more institutional investors for pipe funding. And some might ask, what is a pipe? It's the private investment in public equity. And so once all that cash is now sitting there at the SPAC. You have the public folks came in, they contributed cash in the IPO, pipe comes in, a lot of cash is there, the target's identified, they go through an initial business combination. So that whole process could take four to six months if the SPAC is really quick to market, identifies the target quickly, and finds that investor cash, or it could take up to 24 months. The way I look at a SPAC, it's like an inchoate IPO. The IPO happens before you know what company is being IPO'd. That's right. So, okay, so that leads to my initial observation. Why are we seeing SPACs everywhere these days? I hadn't heard of a SPAC three months ago, and now I'm working on four SPAC deals. What's happening? Yeah, SPACs are everywhere. They've been around since I think the late 2000s, but back then they didn't have a great name. They were not very popular. They were looked at as kind of a risky investment. Now they're, of course, booming. But before I kind of tell you why I think they are booming right now, I want to first caveat that my observations, they are based on my experience that I have with my SPAC clients, my target clients. My views are not that of an economist or an investment bankers. So what I'm seeing, Gary, is that there's a lot of appetite from the investor's perspective. 
And that's because the SPACs offer individuals this ability to invest in an IPO with potentially high upside, because these are typically high growth companies, but they have downside protection. And that's because when they invest in the IPO, they get something that's called the redemption right that's attached to those units in the SPAC. Once the SPAC identifies a target and it issues a proxy statement listing everything about the target to the investors, an investor could get their money back. So they can exercise their redemption right, get their money back. So that's kind of the investor side. Sponsors like SPACs because it gives them a vehicle to go public, identify their target company, buy that company, and they have something called founder shares. And so those founder shares can have significant value. They vest either on the consummation of the combination or they could have more of a carried interest flavor and they vest over time when performance thresholds are hit. So sponsors have this kind of juice, this upside when they do these transactions. And then there's a third bucket, which are your targets, right? So the target company. And the SPAC offers a faster go public route, basically, than your traditional IPO. It also offers a little more certainty on the pricing as compared to a traditional IPO. So in lieu of a typical IPO roadshow where you're presenting to investment bankers and trying to essentially pitch that business for an IPO, the target owners are negotiating with the SPAC. So it's a bit more of like a third party negotiation and they have more control over the pricing process. So I always think of the SPAC on the hunt for a target in some cases is the target on the hunt for a SPAC. If this is a viable alternative to a traditional IPO, maybe instead of an IPO, they're looking for a SPAC to take it public, right? Absolutely. Some of my clients are dual tracking it. And so they may be in the IPO readiness process, but also looking out for SPACs that are basically looking in their industry. And they might want to get in what folks are calling a SPAC bake-off for different targets that are ready to go public, but they want to do it through a SPAC. That sounds delicious. So um, <laughs> so it's helpful to think of this as multiple steps. There's the IPO of the SPAC itself, and then the so-called despacking transaction is the acquisition by the SPAC of the target. How are these acquisitions being structured in the market? I would say there are probably three general categories of acquisition structures. So when we started discussing, I said it's a mix between IPO and an M&A transaction. So at its core, the SPAC business combination, it's an M&A transaction. So it is an acquisition. But in these particular SPAC combinations, I'm seeing three kind of types. The first would be your more vanilla corporate business combination. So essentially, when you have a target that is a standalone C corporation, it might have some lower tier entities. But in that case, the SPAC acquires that company partially tax deferred, sometimes taxable if cash goes to those shareholders, and is relatively simple. Now, sometimes you could have some complexity in what is a seemingly simple transaction. There may be a whole host of issues if you have a lot of foreign operations and foreign entities. You might also need restructuring prior to the SPAC combination. So even in a vanilla corporate combination might have some heartache to get you there. The second general bucket we see is when the target is a partnership for tax purposes. In this case, the target and the SPAC usually have a decision. Do you convert that partnership to a corporate entity or do you retain the partnership and structure into an umbrella partnership C corporation? That's an up C structure. 
And so whichever path you go down in this second bucket, dealing with both sub-C and sub-K principles, and the level of effort is typically a bit heightened. With that heightened complexity does come some potential benefit because in an up-C or a conversion structure, the SPAC may be able to receive a basis step up for any of the cash proceeds delivered in the combination. The target sellers may be able to enter into a tax receivable agreement, that's a TRA, with the SPAC and receive additional contingent purchase proceeds. Those proceeds basically they come about when the SPAC uses those tax deductions and they benefit from those deductions. They pay a portion of that to the target sellers. So there's a little bit of benefit in that, even though there's a little bit of complexity. There's a third bucket, Gary. It is not very popular. We don't see a lot of these, but we are seeing a few pop up in the market where two targets enter into an M&A transaction leading up to a SPAC combination. So for example, company A may merge with company B, forming company AB, and then that becomes the target for a SPAC combination. Interesting. And what are some risks or traps for the unwary that folks should consider in connection with the SPAC transaction? Sure. From a practical point of view, many target companies, they don't have a robust tax or accounting department and they may not have been through an IPO readiness process. In that case, there might be a significant lift required to augment their financial statements to public company standards. And that may include the need to remediate historical tax items, which is really important because those attributes like deferred tax assets, liabilities, NOLs, those have to be disclosed on the S-4 or proxy statement and for go-forward company financial statements. So for example, a target may not have ever established or tracked a tax basis balance sheet. Uh, that's really important when you're going public and you have to establish those deferreds on the financial statement. So that could be a pretty big work stream that the target or the SPAC might not have front of mind. And then from a technical perspective, there are a few issues that we see pop up on a recurring basis. For target partnerships, we almost always see issues with the right treatment of historical allocations of partnership items. Most notably is incorrect application of Section 704C rules. From a SPAC perspective, we typically see inversion issues under Section 367 and 7874, as well as the passive foreign investment company issues where the SPAC is a non-US domiciled corporation. And I believe those last two issues act as a nice segue into the next couple topics. That's perfect. Thanks, Phil. That was a really helpful overview of SPAC transactions, and now we will turn to some international tax implications of SPACs. Next, I would like to welcome Steve Massett, a principal in KPMG's M&A and international tax practice. Steve specializes in cross-border M&A transactions with a particular focus on the U.S. inversion rules. Steve could find an inversion at a child's birthday party. He sees them everywhere. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gary. Great to be here. Steve, a wise man once told me that every acquisition of a U.S. company is an inversion until you prove otherwise. This is a truism born from the painful experiences of applying the myriad of inversion rules, in particular, Section 367A and Section 7874 and the regulations under those sections. Steve, can you give us a 10,000-foot overview of those rules? Let's start with Section 367A. That's the shareholder-level inversion deterrent. 367A 
provides that unless certain requirements are satisfied, U.S. persons recognize gain, but not loss, on the transfer of shares in a U.S. target corporation to a foreign acquiring corporation in a transaction that would otherwise qualify for non-recognition treatment. For example, a Section 351 exchange. Of particular note, the regulations require that to avoid gain recognition under Section 367A, the foreign acquiring corporation, either directly or indirectly through its affiliates, must be engaged in an active trader business outside the US. And the total value of the foreign acquiring corporation must be at least equal to the total value of the US target corporation. As a general rule of thumb, these two requirements are satisfied if the foreign acquiring corporation group conducts an active business outside the US and the foreign acquiring corporation is larger than the US target corporation. Section 7874, in contrast, is a corporate level inversion deterrent because it primarily affects the US target corporation and or the foreign acquiring corporation, not their shareholders. Section 7874 applies if a plan or series of related transactions satisfies three requirements. First, a foreign acquiring corporation must complete a domestic entity acquisition. This is a direct or indirect acquisition of either substantially all the properties directly or indirectly held by a U.S. target corporation or substantially all the properties of a trader business of a U.S. target partnership. For example, a foreign corporation's purchase of all the shares in a U.S. corporation is a domestic entity acquisition because it's an indirect acquisition of the U.S. corporation's properties. The second requirement is that after the domestic entity acquisition, the ownership percentage must be at least 60. The ownership percentage is the amount of the foreign acquiring corporation stock by voter value that is owned by the former U.S. target shareholders or partners by reason of their ownership of the U.S. target. Essentially, we're dealing with an ownership fraction. The numerator is the equity of the foreign acquiring corporation received in respect of U.S. target, and the denominator is the total equity of the foreign acquiring corporation after the acquisition. Now, this analysis may seem like basic math, but the regulations provide a labyrinth of special rules that must be considered in determining the ownership percentage. And these special rules are extremely complex and can apply in very counterintuitive ways. And finally, the third requirement is that the foreign acquiring corporation does not have substantial business activities in the jurisdiction in which it's organized. In practice, this requirement is rarely satisfied. So if 7874 applies to a transaction, then the consequences depend on whether the ownership percentage is less than 80. If the ownership percentage is equal to or greater than 80, then the foreign acquiring corporation is treated as a U.S. corporation for all U.S. tax purposes. Otherwise, the foreign acquiring corporation will be respected as a foreign corporation for U.S. tax purposes. But the U.S. target related U.S. persons and the foreign acquiring corporation shareholders could be subject to adverse U.S. tax consequences. For example, U.S. target and related U.S. persons will not qualify for the COGS exception to the B, and dividends from the foreign acquiring corporation will not qualify for QDI treatment. One important thing to remember about Section 7874 is that the tax residency of the U.S. target owners and the location of the U.S. target assets are irrelevant. 7874 applies equally to a U.S. target with solely U.S. shareholders and U.S. operations as it does to a U.S. target with solely foreign shareholders and CFC operations. Thanks, Steve. This is a really helpful overview. A couple of things I take from it. 367A, it taxes 
US transferors on their gain. It's basically a toll charge provision when you implicate it. 7874 is a lot broader and has perhaps a more enduring consequence, especially if you trip in to the 80% inversion. But even if it's only a 60 to 80% inversion, there is a parade of horribles that ensues. Let's talk about these rules in more concrete terms in the context of SPACs. Let's start with this scenario. A U.S. SPAC identifies a foreign target. The foreign target understandably has no interest in entering the U.S. tax net and being subject, for instance, to guilty. Can the U.S. SPAC, before the despacking transaction, simply outbound? What's the harm? Well, Gary, there's, there's an easy answer to that. Everything and nothing. The outbounding of U.S. SPAC is likely treated as an EFRI organization for U.S. tax purposes, in which U.S. SPAC is, is deemed to transfer all of its cash to foreign SPAC in exchange for foreign SPAC shares, and U.S. SPAC is deemed to distribute those foreign SPAC shares to the U.S. SPAC shareholders. This is a classic inversion fact pattern. Here we have foreign SPAC, the foreign acquiring corporation, acquiring all the properties, i.e. the cash, of U.S. SPAC of the U.S. target. And the U.S. SPAC shareholders own 100% of foreign SPAC by reason of their ownership of U.S. SPAC. Thus, everything is harmful from the perspective that the U.S. SPAC did not become a foreign corporation, but nothing is harmful from the perspective that essentially nothing has happened from a U.S. tax perspective because the foreign SPAC continues to be a U.S. corporation. Gary, a wise man once told me that the U.S. tax system is like the Hotel California. You can check in whenever you'd like, but you can never leave. And think of Section 7874 as the manager of the Hotel California. So simply outbound in the U.S. SPAC sounds like it's fraught with risk. How about if we form a new foreign holco and that foreign holco acquires both the U.S. SPAC and the foreign target? What if the former shareholders of U.S. SPAC own only 50% of the stock of foreign holco by reason of their U.S. SPAC stock? Any risks? Well, Gary, there's another easy answer. It depends. Let's start with Section 7874. The transaction is a domestic entity acquisition because Foreign Hold Code directly acquires all the shares in U.S. SPAC, which noted before is an indirect acquisition of all U.S. SPAC's properties. So now we have to determine the ownership percentage. Here, the tentative ownership percentage is 50, but this is just the starting point. From here, we have to work through all the special rules that could adjust the numerator and or denominator of the ownership fraction. As noted earlier, these rules are very complex and often lead to counterintuitive and adverse results. And even a cursory discussion of these special rules would take up more time than we have today. But the rules that are frequently implicated by SPAC transactions are the non-ordinary course distribution or NOCD rules, which prevent U.S. targets from skinning down their equity to regular distributions. Gary, I'm in a good mood today. So let's assume Section 7874 doesn't apply to the transaction because the ownership percentage is 50. Unfortunately, this doesn't mean that we are out of the woods because we still have to consider shareholder level taxation. Now, this transaction would seem to qualify as a Section 351 exchange, and thus the U.S. transferors would be subject to 367A on their exchange of U.S. SPAC stock for foreign hold co stock unless certain requirements are satisfied. As noted earlier, the regulations have a series of requirements that must be satisfied 
for a U.S. person to avoid recognizing gain under 367A with respect to the outbound transfer of shares in a U.S. corporation. One of these requirements is the total value of the foreign acquiring corporation must be at least equal to the total value of the U.S. target corporation. Here, it seems like we just satisfy this requirement because the total value of foreign holco, which is essentially the value of foreign target, is equal to the total value of U.S. SPAC. However, the Section 367A regulations include anti-abuse rules that may decrease the total value of foreign hold co for certain stuffing transactions. Also, the Section 367A regulations adopt the 7874 NOCD rules, which might increase the value of U.S. SPAC. So let, let's consider a second scenario. A foreign SPAC identifies a U.S. target. Foreign SPAC wants to acquire U.S. target in exchange for cash and equity. What if I told you that at the close of that transaction, the former shareholders of U.S. target would own only 50% of the stock of Foreign Holco by reason of their U.S. stock? We're under the 60% ownership threshold for a Section 7874 inversion, right? Any risks? Gary, similar to the prior scenario, the answer will depend on the extent to which the special rules and the Section 7874 regulations adjust the ownership fraction. In this example, the disqualified stock rules could reduce foreign SPAC's equity to the extent it was considered issued for non-qualified property, for example, cash, in a transaction related to the acquisition of U.S. target. Also, excessive passive asset rules could apply to reduce foreign SPAC's equity to the extent it is attributable to non-qualified property, for example, gold and cold cash. Finally, if the transaction does not result in an ownership percentage of at least 80, then we would still have to consider the application of Section 367A, just as we did in the prior example. Thanks, Steve. Clearly, there are a lot of inversion issues related to SPAC transactions, particularly when the jurisdiction of the SPAC and the target don't align. So now I would like to welcome Barbara Roche to the podcast. Barbara is a managing director with me in KPMG's international tax practice. Prior to joining KPMG, Barbara was with the IRS Office of Chief Counsel International, also known as ACCI, branch two, what some would refer to as the sub F branch. Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gary. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. So Steve has sufficiently scared us about the inversion risk if we form a U.S. SPAC, if that SPAC ends up acquiring a foreign target. So Barbara, shouldn't we just always form a foreign SPAC? You know, unfortunately, Gary, anytime you have a foreign SPAC, you need to think about the Passive Foreign Investment Company or PFIC rules. So as the name suggests, a PFIC is a foreign corporation that is passive under an annual income test or an asset test. Under the income test, the corporation is passive if at least 75% of its gross income is passive. And under the asset test, the, the corporation will be a PFIC if at least 50% of its assets produce passive income or are held for the production of passive income. The definition of passive income generally cross-references the subpart F definition of foreign personal holding company income, which includes items generally thought of as passive, such as dividends, interest, rents, and royalties. And as Phil explained, until they acquire a target, SPACs hold a great deal of cash. Cash can be a passive asset, 
so SPACs can be PFIX. Now the income and asset tests are applied annually, so the SPAC will need to test each of its tax years to determine if it's a PFIC in that year. If it is a PFIC, the next question is, is why does that matter? Who cares if it's a PFIC? Any U.S. shareholder of the SPAC will care. Any U.S. shareholder of a PFIC, regardless of how small their interest is, any U.S. person that is treated as owning a PFIC is subject to tax under the PFIC rules. This is unlike the subpart F rules where there is an ownership threshold in determining whether a shareholder is subject to tax. There is no ownership threshold for PFIC. Now, there are three sets of taxing rules in the PFIC regime and they apply on a shareholder by shareholder basis. So with any particular PFIC, different shareholders can be subject to different tax rules, depending in part on whether they've made certain elections. If a shareholder makes a qualified electing fund or QEF election, the shareholder will have a QEF inclusion each year. And this is an income inclusion based on the PFIX current year earnings and profits, even if the PFIC does not make any distributions to the shareholder. So the QEF shareholder will have phantom income. And mechanically, this works similar to a subpart F inclusion for U.S. shareholders of a controlled foreign corporation, but the calculation of the inclusion is different. Alternatively, a shareholder could make a mark-to-market election under the PFIC rules, but only if the PFIC is regularly traded on certain U.S. or foreign exchanges. And under a mark-to-market election, the shareholder will have annual inclusions or deductions generally based on the PFIC stock price. If a shareholder does not make either of those two elections, it will be subject to these draconian Section 1291 excess distribution rules. And under these rules, the shareholders will need to treat the gain on the disposition of the PFIC shares and certain distributions from the PFIC as ordinary income, which then is subjected to a special tax and interest charge, which is purposefully harsh. In general, if a PFIC is willing to provide a QEF annual information statement, a QEF election often is the best option. However, if the QEF election is not made in the first year that the shareholder holds PFIC stock, then the shareholder will be subject to both the QEF and the 1291 rules. So it is important for a shareholder to make a QEF election in the first year that it owns PFIC stock. And in that case, the shareholder will have what we call a pedigreed QEF, and that means that the shareholder will be subject to tax only under the QEF rules. Barbara, you said that cash can be a passive asset. Let's drill down on this more. Does it matter that the SPAC is not holding the cash to generate passive income? It's holding the cash expressly to acquire a business, presumably an active business. Does it matter whether the SPAC keeps the cash in an interest-bearing account or instead hides it under its mattress? It can make a difference. You know, cash is an interesting asset. There is no hard and fast final rule on the treatment of cash. There's a notice from 1988 that states that cash is a per se passive asset. Then there also is a proposed regulation that was published earlier this year that has a limited exception for working capital, which implies that all other uh, cash is passive. And this proposed regulation also said that the rules described in the 88 notice are going to be included in a final regulation in the future. 
Right now, though, there are no final rules. So that leaves us with a facts and circumstances approach to this question. Now, if the cash is in an interest-bearing account, it's generally going to be a passive asset unless the proposed exception for working capital is satisfied, and a SPAC is not going to satisfy that working capital exception. So if the SPAC has cash in an interest-bearing account, it's pretty safe to assume that the cash is going to be a passive asset. On the other hand, if the cash is in the SPAC's functional currency and is in a non-interest-bearing account, there could be decent arguments that the cash is not passive if the SPAC intends to use the cash to acquire an active income-producing asset. In the SPAC context, this could be really fact-intensive, perhaps with a focus on whether a target company is earning active income rather than, for example, a startup company that might not yet be earning active income. I've heard of a startup exception where a foreign corporation can effectively get a mulligan if it satisfies the asset test or the income test for a PFIC in its startup year. Why isn't that a complete protection for SPACs? It seems like this is the very situation that the startup exception was meant to address. Unfortunately, the startup exception is more limited than the name might imply. First, the exception applies to the first tax year in which the PFIC has gross income. So this means that the exception only applies to one tax year, and it only applies if the PFIC earns gross income. If a SPAC holds cash in a non-interest-bearing account and does not otherwise generate any gross income, the startup exception cannot apply. Second, even if the SPAC holds the cash in an interest-bearing account, the exception applies only if the SPAC is not a PFIC under the income or asset test in either of the two years immediately following the startup years. SPACs generally can have up to 24 months to acquire a target, and a 24-month period can easily cover three tax years. For example, if a calendar year SPAC is formed in November of year one and acquires the target 16 months later in February of year three, the SPAC will not be eligible for the startup exception if the SPAC is a PFIC in year one and year two, even if the SPAC earns gross income in year one because the exception requires the SPAC to not be a PFIC in the two years after the startup year. And in this hypothetical, the SPAC is a PFIC in year two because the target is not acquired until February of year three. So the startup exception certainly is helpful when it applies, but just keep in mind that in practice, it, it can be limited in application. And it should be noted the rule that once a PFIC, always a PFIC applies so that if you if you fail the PFIC test, if you are a PFIC and the shareholder of the PFIC hasn't made the election, the QAF election or the mark to market election, you don't cease to be PFIC stock once you're no longer a PFIC. That's right. The once a PFIC, always a PFIC rule generally means that a particular shareholder remains subject to the 1291 rules in a future year with respect to a corporation that is not a PFIC under the income or asset test. And the shareholder is subject to 1291 because it owned the corporation in an earlier year when it was a PFIC under the income or asset test, and it did not make any elections. So you've told me that if a foreign corporation turns out to be PFIC, all a shareholder needs to do 
is make the QEF election to avoid the application of these draconian 1291 rules. So if the shareholders of a SPAC make a QEF election, and the SPAC turns out to be a PFIC, the shareholders just have to pick up their share of the de minimis amount of income earned by the SPAC. If I'm an investor in a SPAC, and particularly the founder, why would I even care if it's a PFIC if I can just make a QEF election? That can be right if the shareholder owns only stock and is able to make a pedigreed QEF election or a mark-to-market election, because I think you are correct that in that case, that shareholder will only care about the PFIC rules in the year in which the SPAC is a PFIC under the income or asset test, and the QEF inclusions for those years will likely be very low because the SPAC will be generating pretty small amounts of ENP. As a reminder, the QEF election may not be available. A QEF election can be made for a SPAC only if the SPAC chooses to provide annual information statements, and not all SPACs may provide that statement. But one thing to keep in mind is that that U.S. shareholder could own warrants. And U.S. shareholders that own warrants in a PFIC, even U.S. shareholders that have pedigreed QEF or mark-to-market elections, they could be subject to the Section 1291 rules with respect to the shares that they acquire upon exercise of the warrants under a proposed regulation. This proposed regulation treats the shareholders holding period in those shares as including the holding period of the warrants. As a result, if the shareholder held SPAC warrants while the SPAC was a PFIC, then the shareholder would be subject to the 1291 rules on the shares that it acquires upon exercise of the warrant. The exercise of the warrant itself does not trigger 1291, but any gain on the disposition of the shares acquired upon exercise of the warrants would be subject to 1291, taking into account this proposed regulation. And unlike stock, it's not possible to fix this with a QEF election because a QEF election cannot be made for warrants. A shareholder can make a different election with respect to the shares acquired upon exercise of the warrant, a purging election. This purging election will purge the PFIC taint by subjecting the gain in the shares to tax under Section 1291. So if a shareholder makes a purging election, then it's not going to be subject to 1291 going forward with respect to those shares. But the purging election can be painful. The 1291 rules are imposed on the full amount of the gain and the shareholder will have to pay the Section 1291 tax and interest imposed on that gain, even though it is only phantom income. So earlier, Steve and I discussed the possibility that the acquisition by a foreign SPAC of a U.S. target could carry some inversion risk. What happens if, after talking to Steve, the foreign SPAC decides that discretion is the better part of valor, and so simply inbounds into the U.S. before it acquires the U.S. target? Doesn't that just fix the problem? Aren't we out of the PFIC rules? Not necessarily. Again, as we talked about, there is this once a PFIC, always a PFIC rule, where a U.S. person remains subject to the PFIC rules with respect to a corporation, even though that corporation no longer is a PFIC under the income or asset test. And this applies if either the corporation itself was a PFIC or a predecessor corporation was a PFIC. And there's nothing that limits that to only foreign corporations. So there could be a concern that they still remain subject to the PFIC rules, even though it's a domestic corporation. The other thing to keep in mind is that the inbound transaction itself 
even if it's a non-recognition transaction, it's possible that that gain is subject to 1291, even though the gain otherwise is not recognized for other purposes of the code. That is a separate and yet another uncertain issue, whether 1291 can apply to gain on non-recognition transactions. Thanks, Barbara. Thank you so much. And thanks also to Phil and Steve for joining us today and to all of you for tuning in. I hope that you'll return for our next episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax. Until then, take care. 